This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Diplomatic disarray, confusion ahead of crucial U.S.-Russian talks. Bubble breach, more Olympians head to quarantine three days before the Olympic Games begin. And lockdown lift, Denmark removes all restrictions, saying the link between COVID infection and hospitalization is broken. It's Tuesday, let's make a move. A warm welcome to First Move once again. Fantastic to have you with us this Tuesday and a happy Lunar New Year to all of you who are celebrating the year of the tiger in China too. You're also watching live pictures from Moscow, where Russian President Vladimir Putin is set to speak in public for the first time since receiving a response to his demands tied to Ukraine and regional security arrangements. We will take you live to that presser the moment it begins. Also today, the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson in Kyiv meeting his Ukrainian counterpart and has urged Russia to, quote, step back from the brink. The latest on all of this very shortly. For now, stocks meanwhile on the brink of a rebound after the worst January performance since the financial crisis. Yes, the Nasdaq managed a 3% gain for the last two sessions, and that uh, positivity has carried over into the European session. Sentiment there also helped, I think, by Eurozone unemployment data, the jobless rate at its lowest level since the late 1990s. The U.S. jobs report for January also out this Friday. And I have to say, expectations are muted. Some are even predicting job losses, net job losses, due to the challenge of Omicron. That's not stopped the market, however, adjusting to the new rate hike reality. At one point yesterday, investors were expecting five Federal Reserve rate hikes this year. Now, Fed officials stressed on Monday that they want to tap the brakes only gradually without endangering the economic recovery. It's a delicate touch, though, that's clearly required, but it's also delicate diplomacy that requires our attention and analysis first. Let's get to the drivers. Russia's President Vladimir Putin due to make a public appearance in Moscow shortly, just hours before U.S. and Russian diplomats talk on the phone. Russia says it's still preparing its response to a U.S. proposal for diffusing tensions on Ukraine's border. And the British Prime Minister is heading to Kyiv amid a flurry of moves aimed at easing the crisis. Nick Robertson joins us from Moscow. Sam Kiley is in the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv, for us too. Nick, I'll come to you. Plenty to discuss on that side. We obviously are awaiting that press conference where... Russian President Vladimir Putin has been hosting EU Prime Minister, or EU, uh, the Hungarian Prime Minister, um, Viktor Orban. What are we expecting from this press conference? And can you also give us some clarity on some apparent confusion over the response that the Russians received from the United States too? Yeah, the uh, Kremlin spokesman said that was a mix-up uh, about the United States thinking it had had a full response from the Kremlin. The, the 
the spokesman said that President Putin uh, hasn't made his full remarks uh, yet and, and fully addressed the letter that the United States and NATO sent to Russia last week. So that was put to one side. The, the foreign minister over the weekend had indicated he had sort of demanded some urgent clarification on a security issue that that had been in discussion previously, and perhaps that's where the where the confusion came in. But regardless, it is of course President Putin. Everyone's waiting to hear from, and the spokesman indicated that we would likely hear from President. Putin and possibly on his thoughts about what the United States and NATO have said in a press conference following his meeting with Viktor Orban. You know, Putin and uh, Orban met uh, maybe a couple of hours ago and they sat at the opposite ends of a very long table. But President Putin saying it was good to be able to meet, you know, sort of see each other eye to eye rather than meet over the phone, even if the sort of COVID conditions meant that they were essentially at the opposite ends of a long table. Orban is pretty much uh, Putin's perhaps biggest friend and ally in Europe. Uh, and Orban was making that point. They've known each other 13 years, met 12 times. Uh, and so there was a lot of sort of uh, mu mutual discussion of, of how they'd helped each other, of, of how they hope to help each other in the future. But it was interesting that in one translation of their comments made at that table there, uh, that Orban said, you know, think of my visit here as a peace mission. And I want to assure you, he said to President Putin, that no European leader uh, wants to go to war. They far prefer to solve uh, issues through political dialogue. So that seems to be how Orban sees his place in this. And we've been told by the Kremlin to expect this, uh, this press conference afterwards that would involve both men. But given the COVID uh, situation and the, 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 the sort of you look at that long table where they're sitting at opposite ends. Uh, it's hard to imagine President Putin stepping into a room full of journalists and we've seen a room full of journalists waiting for that press conference uh, to happen in the current environment, knowing that President Putin's going to be going to China for the, for the Olympics later this week. So uh, let's see what happens. But we were told by the Kremlin to expect somebody to ask a question about uh, about about his Putin's response to those letters from the United States. So he may not answer it fully, but this could be our first indication yet since he got those letters. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see. And we will certainly, as you mentioned, um, take our viewers to that press conference, should we get it. And to your point too, plenty of social distancing there, but we'll get what we're given. Um, Sam Kiley, come in here as well, because obviously the perspective from Kiev is a flurry of diplomacy for different reasons. Prime Minister Boris Johnson, the UK Prime Minister, is there today too. The Polish Prime Minister also in a show of support for the Ukrainians too. So there's a lot going on today, wherever you look. Yeah, now the uh, Poles first, they have promised uh, drones, surveillance drones and other military materiel uh, for the Ukrainians. And just before he set off, Boris Johnson, who's got his own wars to fight at home, notably in the Houses of Parliament over Partygate, has announced £88 million worth of new military aid coming in. That's on top of uh, pre-existing aid programmes, military aid programmes that include uh, a couple of hundred uh, British troops here in the west of Ukraine, not employed as fighting forces, but as trainers training the Ukrainians how to use uh, tank-killing uh, rockets that have been supplied by the United Kingdom and indeed the United States. So Boris Johnson's expecting to meet with uh, President Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, uh, in an hour or two, they will hold a joint press conference 
afterwards. It's quite a whistle-stop tour. Boris Johnson normally likes to get out to the front line. No doubt he would have liked to have done that in these sorts of circumstances, try to distract uh, domestically from a very difficult story he's got back home. But as far as the Ukrainians are concerned, it's a very important moment because they're now talking about setting up sort of micro-alliances alongside, but not outside, but outside of NATO. So today they're talking about hoping to be able to announce quite soon uh, an alliance, a micro-alliance, if you like, between the United Kingdom, Poland and Ukraine. Uh, very much the sort of thing that actually they've been uh, worried about emerging in Moscow. Moscow has been complaining that these uh, alliances don't necessarily mean that NATO as such has to get involved in Ukraine. If, these, uh, if there is a bilateral involvement, of course, the United States has also got training teams here on the ground, Julia. Nick Robertson in Moscow and Sam Kiley in Kyiv. Thank you so much for those updates there. OK, more cracks in the closed loop. Beijing reports 24 new cases among Olympic-related personnel on this year's Lunar New Year's Day, just three days before the Winter Games begin. Six of them found inside the so-called closed loop. Selena Wang is live in Beijing for us. You are there. You made it. I guess the good news here is that these cases keep being found. The bad news is there are cases in the first place, Selena. Yeah, Julia, but the Olympic officials, they are saying that the goal is not to have zero COVID cases at all. The goal is to have zero COVID transmission inside the closed loop. So they want to catch those cases before they spread. They want to limit that transmission. As you say, they've already found cases in the closed loop. They found 70, nearly 70 cases involving athletes or team officials. For those athletes who test positive, this is heartbreaking and it's frustrating since some of them feel perfectly healthy. So any positive confirmed case in the closed loop, they're immediately sent to isolation at a facility or to a hospital if they're symptomatic. And Julia, they cannot leave that area until that facility until they have cleared two negative PCR tests with at least 24 hours in between. And in some instances, that can take weeks. So in this critical period where these athletes should be settling in, getting ready for competition, they're stuck inside. And we are seeing a growing number of some high-profile athletes who are stuck in this incredibly stressful situation. So Alana Myers-Taylor, she is a multiple-time Olympic winner. She is on Team USA. She has said that she's tested positive for covid in China. She is now in an isolation facility. She's asymptomatic. She's really hoping that she could clear those negative PCR tests before her competition in a couple of weeks. But Julia, that is not guaranteed. Also a Russian biathlete, she confirmed she cannot compete because of a positive COVID test. USA team bobsledder Josh Williamson, he tested positive before even leaving for Beijing. So he was not able to travel with the team. So more heartbreaking stories like this are expected to happen as more and more athletes arrive. We are still a few days away from the opening ceremony, Julia. Yeah, it's so heartbreaking, all that work, all that effort, and then the added anxiety of the fear of testing positive either just before you go or even getting all the way there in the same. And you've well documented the process and the anxiety it creates, and that's even without trying to compete at the same time. What about for the people that are working inside this bubble, though? As I mentioned, it's the Lunar New Year holiday today. Very different experience because, of course, these people, my understanding is they're not going home. They're not leaving this bubble. So it's a very different New Year feel for them this time around, too. 
it's really hard to believe that today is the Lunar New Year. You certainly do not feel that mood, especially in this Olympic bubble we're confined to. The streets are empty. You don't feel that sense. Of course, you can see some of the Lunar New Year lights around me, but it's not what you would expect. This is the most important holiday of the year in China by far. It is like Christmas, Thanksgiving, and New Year's Eve all combined. Such an important time to be with family. But for all of the local Chinese staff, that are inside this closed loop. They cannot be with their family. In fact, they even have to quarantine for as long as three weeks after the Olympics end before they can go back to their homes to see their family. So this is months that they're away from their families, especially during this important period. And earlier today, I was actually speaking to a woman who is working at the Olympic Games. She was standing on this side of the fence behind me. Why was she standing there? Because that is the closest place she can get with people outside of the closed loop. So her husband and two young sons, they were standing several meters away on the other side of the fence. A really touching moment. They were waving to each other, her two young sons giving the traditional Lunar New Year well wishes to their mother, wishing her happy health and fortune and saying how much they loved her and missed her. And this woman told me that this has been some of the really most difficult parts of her life. This is the longest she spent away from her family. She said she also worked in the 2008 games, and back then it felt like this big party. There was a lot of excitement, but this time because of COVID, she said everything feels just very tough. Julia? Yeah, and you need to be. <laughs> Selena Wang, thank you so much for that report there. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Denmark has lifted all domestic coronavirus restrictions, saying it no longer considers COVID a socially critical sickness. Authorities are still reporting thousands of cases a day, but far fewer patients are ending up in intensive care. Officials say vaccinations have severed the link between infection and severe illness. CNN's Scott McLean joins us now from Copenhagen. Scott, great to have you with us. This was the key for me. They have high amounts of cases on a relative basis, even compared to the past. But their vaccination rate so high, they're saying, look, we've broken that link between people getting sick and people getting really sick. And this is crucial. That, yeah, you're absolutely right, Julia. And look, I just checked. Denmark officially has the second highest infection rate on planet Earth right now, but you sure wouldn't right. know it. As you mentioned, starting today, virtually all COVID restrictions have been lifted in the country. There's no mask mandate. There's no COVID passes, no curfews to worry about. In fact, you don't even have to legally self-isolate in this country if you test positive. Now, for the last two years, Danes have been following the often strict often changing set of rules and regulations to AT, but now the government says they simply are not needed because the vaccination rate is so high. So essentially, the government is willing to let the virus rip through society, spread pretty freely because they say that society has enough protection due to the vaccine to prevent the vast majority of people from getting seriously ill. And Denmark is not the only country taking that approach. Loud music, stiff drinks, and close talking. In Denmark, they're partying like it's 2019. After two years of on-again, off-again restrictions, mask mandates, and lockdowns, Denmark has officially kissed COVID restrictions goodbye. I am over it. Like, I think everybody is. I'm excited. You know, we've been waiting for this moment for so long. In reality, the pandemic hasn't gone away. In fact, new average daily infections in Denmark are more than 12 times higher than the country's previous peak and rising. Is now really the best time to do away with the rules? Sure. And of course, everybody's asking us that question. But when we're looking at our hospital admission rates day by day, 
and we see fewer and fewer cases. And we see very few cases in the elderly that are vaccinated, actually admitted to hospital or even dying. And that's just because of vaccination? I have no other good explanation why Denmark is in such a unique place. Denmark has one of the highest vaccination rates on Earth. Late last year, they lifted most restrictions, only to once again batten down the hatches in December, closing schools, mandating masks indoors, and putting curfews on bars and restaurants. Now, virtually all of those restrictions are gone. Is it really the end this time? Well, we hope so, but we promised uh, the citizens of Denmark that we will only have restrictions if they are truly necessary and we'll lift them as soon as we can. It's not just Denmark. Last week, England lifted nearly all of its domestic restrictions as lawmakers set out a novel new strategy. We must learn to live with COVID in the same way that we've learned to live with flu. Before the vaccine, COVID was a lot more deadly than the flu. But as immunity rose and a less severe variant emerged, deaths directly caused by influenza or pneumonia are now not far off of COVID. And lately, they're contributing factors far more often. Is it reasonable to treat COVID like we treat the flu? I think it's not a bad model, unless, of course, the virus surprises us and comes up with a nasty, highly infectious variant. Back in Denmark, people are free to circulate. So is the virus. But two years, three vaccine doses, and a lot of sacrifice later, COVID doesn't seem so scary anymore. Now, health officials, Julia, say that, look, there are no guarantees that restrictions won't come back at some point in the future. But the health minister told me that for him to even consider going that direction, there would have to be a new variant that is not only more transmissible, but also more deadly than Omicron. Yeah, great reporting there as well and some of the comparisons across Europe. Um, the director general of the health authority there had some interesting comments to say about vaccine mandates. And I just wanted to read the quote quickly and get your take. Um, I do not believe in imposed vaccine mandates. It's a pharmaceutical intervention with possible side effects. You need as an authority to recognise that. I think if you push too much, you will have a reaction. Actions generate reactions, especially with vaccines. Scott, I just look at some of the protests that we've seen around Europe and, and his comments there struck a chord. He makes a valid point, I think. Yeah, and Denmark has not seen nearly the level of protest that we've seen elsewhere in Europe, nor has right. Denmark threatened to make the vaccine c compulsory. It, look, it's easy for Denmark to sort of condemn others for going that direction because they have some built-in advantages. Number one, they have this sort of culture uh, baked in already long before the pandemic where people generally trust institutions and trust the government. Um, they also have... Uh, the government that it says that has really gone out of its way to be open, be honest, be transparent with people about both the pros and the cons of vaccination. I'll give you one quick example, and that's the AstraZeneca vaccine, which Denmark actually stopped using last year because they found that there were some very rare blood clots found in a very small number of people. And they say that that didn't damage trust in vaccinations. They said that actually helped trust in, in vaccinations. Julia? Yeah, trust. Scott McClay, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. So to come here on First Move, a gun in the hands of Mr. Putin. Quote, Poland warns of Russia's grip on Europe's natural gas supplies. And the big screen scores over the big streamers. IMAX reports its best holiday season in years. That's all coming up. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move, and we are still awaiting comments from Russian President Vladimir Putin on the situation in Ukraine. The press conference set to begin in Moscow. And uh, as mentioned earlier, we will bring that to you live as soon as it begins. President Putin's comments could affect the direction of energy markets and continue to do so. Energy, as you can see, currently lower. Natural gas leading the declines down some 3% in the session so far, but strong gains across the energy complex so far this year, with natural gas leading the way up some 26% year to date. Energy investors dealing with a whole host of issues, including an anticipated end to COVID restrictions, bad weather, lower than anticipated OPEC plus output, and of course, the Ukrainian uncertainties playing a big part too. Poland's prime minister has warned that a new natural gas pipeline between Russia and Europe would be, quote, a gun in the hands of Mr. Putin. President, uh, sorry, Russia already supplies 40 percent of Europe's gas imports, which means any new sanctions could trigger a deep freeze across Europe, as Anna Stewart reports. Europe's winter could feel much colder in the coming weeks. If all of Russian gas stops flowing to Europe, you'll see uh, prices literally going vertically through the roof. Gas dependency is a hard habit to kick. The EU relies on Russia for over 40% of its gas imports, and some countries are more vulnerable than others. For example, you can see here Austria, Finland and Latvia rely on Russia for all of their imported gas. Germany, Europe's economic powerhouse, is particularly vulnerable. Not only does it rely on Russia for the majority of its gas imports, but it depends on gas for over a quarter of its energy. And actually, this gas dependence has grown over the past few decades, as Germany transitions away from coal and nuclear power. It's surprising, given the EU's faced this problem before. Gas that should come from Russia through Ukraine to the European Union is not coming. Russia has invested billions of dollars in more pipelines to Europe since 2009 to avoid transiting through Ukraine. There's Nord Stream 1, shown here in yellow, and alongside it, the new $11 billion Nord Stream 2, currently awaiting certification by German regulators. That pipeline's future, though, is in doubt. If Russia invades Ukraine, one way or another, Nord Stream 2 will not move forward. There are concerns that this measure, and others, could trigger Russian retaliation against the West. It could suspend all gas exports to Europe, which is now scrambling to shore up supplies. One option is liquefied gas via ships. Over Christmas and New Year, European utilities quietly ordered an entire fleet of LNG imports, mostly from the US and Qatar, and they're all due to arrive this month, and it's a lot of gas. It isn't a fix for all. Experts agree there wouldn't be enough LNG to replace Russian gas. Many European countries lack LNG terminals. And redirecting gas through Europe is also challenging due to limits on existing pipelines. Another option is storage. Europe still has nine weeks supply in storage. And there's the so-called emergency cushion. That's another 10%. Um, So all good. I mean, maybe they could like squeak through. There are non-gas options. Experts say decommissioned coal and nuclear plants could be fired back up. Ultimately, Europe could survive a winter without Russian gas, but at a great financial cost. It would also have a cost for Russia. One reason experts think full gas suspension to Europe is unlikely. Does Europe seek uh, to reduce its reliance on Russian energy? Does this backfire eventually, longer term, on Russia? We all thought it had in 2009, right? Because, you know, 
all these LNG receiving terminals went in and the U.S. started drilling, drilling, drilling. And But, you know, having the actual physical asset of inventory tanks or LNG export capacity, um, none of that is useful uh, if you don't use it in a strategic and uh, way. And you're not thinking about the security premium, which people felt they didn't have to pay anymore. Energy security comes at a price. Anna Stewart, CNN, London. Stay with First Move. More to come. Welcome back to First Move. Russian President Putin is due to speak shortly in Moscow after meeting with Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban. That appearance at a press conference set to begin soon, and we will bring that to you live at the moment that begins. In the meantime, Nick Robertson joins us now from Moscow. It's a waiting game. It's a waiting game in many ways, actually, Nick, as we uh, watch the flurry of diplomacy that's taking place, not just obviously in, in Moscow, but in Kiev and beyond at this moment. What do we expect to hear in this press conference? Because Viktor Orban himself has come under some criticism and pressure from the opposition in Hungary, saying you're undermining the broader push here to try and de-escalate the tension on the Ukraine border. Yeah, it really is a waiting game. And this is a waiting game where Putin really appears to be quite an expert in keeping everyone waiting. And he really appears in the assessment is that he likes the fact that everyone is coming to him, needs him for the answers, is looking to him. It reaffirms for him his place and importance on the global stage. And Viktor Orban, uh, you know, perhaps his closest ally in Europe um, and certainly uh, the opposition in, in Hungary would criticize Viktor Orban. There are coming up there in, in April. And uh, Viktor Orban mentioned that to President Putin as they were sitting at the opposite ends of the very sort of long COVID separation type table they were at. Uh, and Putin said, look, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not, and we don't endorse one side or another, but I think you're doing a very good job for the uh, for the Hungarian people. And he pointed out the fact that, you know, Orban had secured a gas deal, 80% of, of Hungary's gas, 55% of its oil comes from Russia. And Orban has secured a gas deal reaching into 2036. And Putin noted that those gas prices were at five times lower the current market rate. Um, so, you know, it really indicates there how Putin can have a huge influence in another country because he is sort of stabilizing uh, the, the energy costs for Hungary at a very important time. Uh, and that's politically that's valuable for Orban at home. But what we're really waiting for here um, is for the two men to finish their meeting. Uh, you know, they met around the table. They were going to be having a working lunch as well. And then this press conference. And I think this is significant that the, um, that the spokesman for the Kremlin uh, said that he did expect, he was asked about this just a few hours ago, and he said he did expect a question to be asked of President Putin uh, about his response to the United States and NATO's letters. So, you know, when the Kremlin spokesman says that, that's a pretty sure indication that somebody in the audience is going to ask that question of President Putin. Now, we don't know what he's going to say. Will he give a fulsome answer? Will he be a little bit evasive? Will he, will he hit the highlights? We don't know. But Orban came saying, and, and this was sort of one of those important Important moments uh, as the t as the pair met at opposite ends of the table. He said to Putin, "You know, think of this as as a peace mission, and I've come here, you know, to assure you that no European leader wants war. Uh, everyone wants to try to solve this in a by." 
a political means. Uh, you know, and so this is the first real face-to-face, eye-to-eye, where a European Union leader, whatever the criticism back home and whatever the political points he can score for himself and put in the bag and take back home, uh, he is telling Putin, Europe is not trying to threaten you. Uh, and that is sort of one of the very important messages that you can better, best convey at a table, face to face with the leader. And that's, you know, that's what's been absent right now uh, over the past few months. Yes. And if you can score much cheaper energy prices uh, while you do it, then all the better. Um, we shall see what this press conference brings. Nick Robertson, great to have you with us once again. Thank you. OK. As I mentioned, we await that press conference. I will take you there as soon as it begins. In the meantime, box office bonanza for IMAX. It ended 2021 with global box office revenues of $638 million. Just to give you a reference point, that's up nearly 150% over 2020. But it's not just a pandemic comparison effect. That was the theatre company's best fourth quarter since 2017. Now, much of that is thanks to smash hits like Spider-Man, No Way Home and Dune. But it's actually not just about the movies. IMAX is branching out into feature events and live streaming too, including the recent release of the Beatles' iconic 1969 rooftop concert. IMAX CEO Rich Gelfond joins us now. Rich, great to have you with us. I mean, what a wonderful, magical event to host. Um, I did take a look at that. Fantastic. Um, And I think it's another example, and we can talk about the movie business too, but an alternative alternative revenue source for IMAX, which is important too. Yeah, Julia, and thanks for having me on. I think you also have to look at it as partly a strategic pivot. I mean, the the world is changing, the industry's changing, the windows are changing, um, things going to streaming are changing. And I think if you're a company that just sits around and says, I'm going to do things the same way I've done them for the past 20 years, you're going to be left in the dust. So IMAX has been looking to move into other areas. And um, the Beatles film, which included a live stream with Peter Jackson, um, was really fun. It had an older demographic. Um, My 24-year-old stepson said he thought that uh, the average age was 100, which proves there's a way to get get older people into theaters. I I think it was actually 99, Julius. I don't want to exaggerate. That makes all the difference. Exaggerate it. (laughs) <laughs> um, but, you know, we, just to prove we're not prejudiced against younger people, we did a live stream with Kanye and Drake about a month ago, and that was really successful, people dancing in the theaters. Um, we also, um, in, in a related way, did a deal with Disney+, Plus, where we're now on that service, and for a number of the big Marvel titles, you could see them with IMAX aspect ratio. So the, the core movie business is doing extremely well as you led into um with your intro and you know we've had positive ebitda for four quarters we're not like a regular exhibition company but i think we have to lead the way to a transition to the new world and look at new ways of doing things i want to go um and talk about what's going on in the movie business but very quickly because you announced the imax enhanced disney plus deal are you talking to some of the other streamers uh, paramount plus hbo max well, I'd rather not say which ones, oh. but yes, we are talking to some of the other streamers. Okay, so we'll watch this space. You can come back and talk to us when you uh, when you have news potentially on that front. Um, I mentioned some of the stats, which I think are pretty astonishing for the movie business. We're still dealing to various degrees around the world 
with COVID and Omicron specifically. And I think it's important for my viewers to understand the sheer scale of revenues that are outside the United States for you. You are a vastly international business. And from what I'm seeing, it's sort of two things. It's movie going outside of the US market as well as within it, but also the specific movie, getting what people want to see in the cinemas actually gets them through the doors, irrespective of COVID. Yeah, and there's actually a subset of that which is local language content. Mm. So what we uh, about two thirds of IMAX's revenue in a typical year is outside of North America. And one way we've been able to keep that fresh and actually grow it during the pandemic was by doing local language films. And, um, you know, in Japan, um, two of the films we're involved with became two of the biggest films in the history of Japan. In China, we set a record the local language box office in a year that was a pandemic year. So there was, you know, there, there's a lot going on and that's a part of our business we're building. And not only um, are we doing regular films, but we're filming local films with IMAX cameras. And um, it's a great day to ask that question because today's the first day of Chinese New Year. And yeah. typically a huge percentage of our business, China's about a third of our revenues and a huge percentage of our business comes out of China. And it's very early because today was only the first day, but 2021 is the best year in the history of movies in China over a Chinese New Year period. And as I said, it's in the middle of the first day, but it looks, the first day looks on track um, in accordance with, with that record year. So that's kind of promising also. I mean, China took, uh, overtook the United States, didn't it? It was the largest movie market in the world last year. What should You've said what IMAX is learning and how you're evolving, and it's a pivot point too, but what do you think the studios uh, and the streamers should have taken away from the past year as well, whether it's about distribution, the balance between perhaps letting a movie breathe in the cinemas before taking it uh, to a different flat platform for distribution, like streaming, for example, didn't Spider-Man perhaps not prove that if you let a good movie breathe, you can make a lot of money in the cinemas? Well, great question, Julian. I think, it, you know, it's even beyond that. It wasn't just Spider-Man. Shang-Chi was the first mm. movie um, that Disney released that went um, not to the service or a hybrid service and theatrical. It went straight to the movies and it became the biggest Labor Day uh, movie in history. Um, you know, it, and that wasn't sort of a well-known franchise property. So it's just no question. I think early on the pandemic, people said, well, uh, streaming is gonna replace the theatrical experience, but I think they didn't take into account the issue of piracy, which was enormous. I mean, you know, and people didn't wanna pay for streaming, they wanted it free. And that was enabled by kind of easy downloading of the content. And then, um, you know, it was shared so wi widely and you looked at major franchises where the earlier version did seven, eight hundred million dollars, a billion. And when they put it without a theatrical release, they did one or two hundred million. So they were giving away money. And I think even the recent results from the streamers, uh, there was an interesting article yesterday in The Wall Street Journal that said people that sign up for streaming, um, it's they're not sticky, that about half of them are, are um, when they sign up because of events like big movies. It's not as sticky and within four months, half of them are gone. So I think mm. the studios have to be looking at this and saying an exclusive theatrical release and in particular an IMAX release, we create global events. And there's no question Spider-Man was a global event. 
And that's why it's at over $1.7 billion already. If it had gotten in China, it would have been at, at over $2 billion. So I think there's just no question that the idea that you put it up in streaming and it's all incremental has proven to be not true. Yeah, streaming speed dating, no strings attached. Right. People don't have to stick around. Um, Rich, I have 10 seconds. What do you think is going to be the top movie of 2022? I'll, I'll, I'll miss that. Yeah, we'll move on quickly in case someone tells me off. Top movie of 2022? Uh, you can't put me in that position. But oh, there's so please. many, including the new talk on Jurassic World. You know, if you, if you ask me to go out there, I think it's not talked about a lot, but I'll say maybe Avatar. Uh, yeah, the avatar the what I'm looking forward to. Rich, great to chat to you. Rich Gelf on there. I'm ex-CEO. Thank you. Okay, coming up after the break, it was already pretty quiet. Now Bentley sets a smooth course for an all-electric future. And the CEO is next. Bentley's reputation as a maker of exceptional motor cars has survived the test of time, dating back to 1919. The Bentley brand is favoured by celebrities, royalty and a footballer or two to boot. Today, Volkswagen-owned Bentley sells plug-in hybrid versions of its Bentayga SUV from $160,000 and Flying Spur sedan from $208,000. And now it's spending big to become a fully electric brand by 2030. Its first fully all-electric car will roll or glide off the production line in three years. And every year for four years after that, a new EV will be launched. Adrian Hallmark is CEO and chairman of Bentley. Adrian, great to have you with us. Happy New Year and congratulations on a record-breaking 2021 as well. This is not just about producing EVs, surely. This is about a, a fundamental shift in supply chain, in, in manufacturing, in approach to what your client base is asking for. Yeah, thank you, Julia, and happy new year to you too. It's um, it is a reinvention of the company, uh, and it's very exciting. It's it's not without its risks, but we are totally committed to be carbon neutral and fully electric in our product range by 2030. And to get there, as you quite rightly said, we start in 25 with the first electric vehicle, and then there will be five launches in five years. Two and a half billion investment program, all based around uh, this new technology and a new factory. Uh, here in Crew, alongside or within the boundaries of what we already have. What can you tell us about the car, or is it a, a secret right now? I mean, I appreciate you've got what three years till it's on the road, but I think everyone will be clamouring to understand what exactly your offering is going to present. Okay, and you're right. I can't give too much away, but I can <laughs> give you some pointers at least. Okay. Uh, I mean, first of all, it, it will sit alongside the other four models that we currently sell. So we have the Continental GT two-door coupe. We then have the convertible, then the Flying Spur that you've mentioned, and then the Bentayga. And all of them, by 2024, will be only available as plug-in hybrids. This is the first step in our electrification journey. So the first full battery electric vehicle uh, will be a complementary product to that product range. It won't substitute any of them. Um, it's a conventional body style, but I won't describe what it is. Um, and the price point, you'll have to wait and see. But it does sit um, apart from them. So basically on all the important things, you're going to keep me guessing. Um, the Ventega SUV is your uh, top selling model at the moment. What percentage were hybrid that you sold last year? I know your ambition is to have 20%, but what, what percent were hybrid last year? Can you tell me? Yeah. So last year, it was actually just over 20%. And bearing in mind, it wasn't fully available until spring of last year. So in just nine months, 
we hit slightly above our original expectation for the full year, which is incredible. So, so you're going to definitely launched... sell more. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Where do you see that um, percent going? Um, it's difficult to say, but I, I would expect 30 to 35% to be quite comfortable. And why do I say this? About 60% of our customers live in cities and they use the car on a daily basis. And for most people with short journeys, a hybrid, especially with our powertrain combination, is a really good bridge between a full combustion engine vehicle and a full electric because you can run it most days without starting the engine. I, in fact, do the same myself on the short commute to the factory over nine miles. So it's not for everyone, but we think about a third of our customers will choose that option. What about charging? Uh, this car is not for the masses by any means. I think you'd be the first to admit that. It's not built for people who hang around charging stations either or with the general public. How do you handle charging of this or do you anticipate them charging at home? Like, What's the plan here for that? Yes. So today, uh, we know this from our research, we know that uh, all of our customers charge at home or at work. That's the main usage pattern. And because you've also got a petrol motor uh, that can still give you 400 miles before you need to charge the battery again, you're never at risk of running out of everything unless you don't fuel up. So home and work is the current pattern. And we also get all the data from our customers on a regular basis. And they're averaging between 60 and 70% of their journeys on full electric mode, even with a circa 30 mile European certified range. Hmm. It's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, you and I have talked in the past and we've talked about some of the supply chain challenges and you've said, look, it's not been a problem for Bentley, whether it's semiconductors or beyond. But we've had a few concerning conversations on this show about all the different car making brands that are saying, look, we're going to go full on EV over the next five to 10 years. And people turning around and saying there are not going to be the resources available, whether it's the battery, the individual components of the battery, the resources that are available. It's simply not possible. How are you at Bentley thinking about this? It's a, a sort of planetary concern if you're talking about protecting the environment and becoming net zero, but it's also potentially a supplier issue, if not for you, for, for VW and for others. Other makers. Yes. I mean, you're absolutely right that no one predicted, or let's say no one told us, and we didn't yeah. predict, uh, the semiconductor crisis that we've seen in the last couple of years. We're very lucky, and you have to put us into context. If there's 80 million cars built and sold globally by all companies, I mean, our record year of 14,560, um, we still have <laughs> 14,560 cars. So we don't consume a great deal of semiconductors. And we've been privileged to be part of a big group and have all of that secured. Going forward, all of the technologies that we need are visible. The battery supply route is known. We have a plan A. We're constantly looking at alternatives that are better in terms of performance, technology, or cost. But before anything else comes along, like solid state will, we're convinced of that, the back end of this decade or early next decade, we have a plan A and without low volumes, we're confident we can fulfill uh, our requirements. The bigger picture, yeah. I agree, there's definite constraints and they're not going to go away overnight. Yeah, I, I like the fact that you guys are talking about it because I feel with the margins on these cars and the kind of ownership of the people, then these are some of the big questions we should be asking. So I'm glad you are. Adrian, great to have you with us. Adrian Hallmark, Bentley CEO and Chairman. Come back when you can give me more details, please. <laughs> Thank you. You'll be the first to know, Julia. Thank you. Oh, and I'm going to hold you to that. Thank you. <laughs> we're back after this. 
Welcome back to First Move. All this week, we're exploring the ways people, communities, businesses and industries in Japan are innovating and preparing for a world beyond the pandemic. Today, we look at how the pivot to remote work is creating opportunities for different living solutions in the Japanese countryside. CNN's Blake Essig reports. This morning, we're popping in on Yuki Nishide who's actually in a meeting with a colleague. His job, working in HR for a Tokyo-based IT company. Except, we're not in Tokyo. We're sitting riverside in snowy Hakuba village near the city of Nagano. Since early 2020, the 31-year-old has lived a nomadic lifestyle, traveling from prefecture to prefecture, exploring Japan, all while working a full-time job. Do you find yourself more productive when you're sitting on the bank of a river working as opposed to being in an office space? I think productivity increases. I think it is easier to come up with better ideas when you work in a relaxed state, listening to the sound of the river flowing and feeling the breeze. Just before the pandemic, Nishide signed up for a co-living service called Address. For around $350 a month, the subscription lets him stay at any of the 220 homes listed on its platform across Japan. Hakuba Valley is just his latest stop. Now, things do get pretty quiet here in the off-season, but services like Address are hoping to attract more young people to the area. Our members include doctors, nurses, cooks, monks, and many other professionals. They are creative and young, in their 20s to their 40s, and can provide their skills and work together to help promote and help these local areas. Address founder Takashi Sabeto says his subscribers have risen more than six times since the pandemic started. He believes that this means that a rising number of people in Japan are looking for more diverse living options. In fact, in the last two years, people have been leaving Tokyo in record numbers. According to Japan's Ministry of Internal Affairs and Communication, more than 410,000 residents moved out of Tokyo in 2021, the largest ever outflow of people from the capital since data became available nearly a decade ago. And now with the pandemic, this is actually enforced changes that were already ongoing for, for a while of choosing a life in the countryside over uh, city life feel that uh, it makes much more sense to uh, go for the countryside. And now with uh, more telework options on the rise, this has really taken on a new dimension. Evolving attitudes in the pursuit of new ideas are helping create innovative living solutions out of the pandemic. While cities still play a central role in shaping Japan's culture and economy, Rural areas are emerging bright spots, providing new opportunities and room for growth in every sense. Oh, those beautiful mountains. That's it for the show. Stay safe, connect the world. Becky Anderson is next, and I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.